Good morning, everyone. My name is Will Pomeranz. I'm Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome you to our meeting today on MINS II and the Donbass conflict six years later. Uh, just a brief word on some upcoming events. On Friday, March 19th at 9.30, we will have a book talk by Professor William Butler of Penn State University, uh, who will be talking about his new book, International Law in the Russian Legal System. Well, today we're going to talk about the Minsk II protocols. Uh, they were agreed to six years ago by the leaders of Ukraine, Russia, France, and Germany in order to work toward ending the conflict in Ukraine's Donbass region. Since then, implementation of the Minsk II Accords has been difficult with some moments of stabilization but an overall failure to move toward the conflict resolution phase. Uh, additionally, recent ceasefire violations are evidence that the situation is worsening. Uh, today we have an expert panel to discuss the situation in the Donbass and the front line today, assess the implementation of MINS II, and to share the major achievements and shortcomings on the development of the situation in the region. Um, like all of our uh, Facebook uh, conversations, if you have a questions, question, you can email us at kennan at wilsoncenter.org. You can tweet us at, Ken, at Kennan Institute or post on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when sending questions. So with those preliminaries, we're going to begin with our discussion. And our first speaker is Hannah Schellist who is currently Director of, of Security Programs at the Foreign Policy Council Ukrainian Prison. Prior to this, she, uh, she served for more than 10 years as a senior researcher at the National Institute for, for Strategic Studies under the President of Ukraine. Uh, and she is a leading Ukrainian security expert advising the government, parliament, and other uh, specialized groups in foreign policy and international security. Anna, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. And uh, a good morning to the US audience and good evening for the, uh, those in Europe. And thank you for the invitation. It's definitely quite a um, difficult period as we have a lot of dates. And uh, six years of Minsk that's been in February and uh, tomorrow we have uh, seven years of uh, illegal uh, Ukrainian referendum. So, that is definitely so many symbolic dates uh, that uh, create the current situation with the security uh, in Ukraine and around Ukraine. Because definitely when we are speaking about Minsk, we are speaking not purely just about uh, Russian-Ukrainian relations. We're speaking a lot about the uh, international norms and what is happening with the international security system, or at least with the European security system for these uh, uh, seven years. And uh, as you asked me to start uh, with the security implications of what is after six years and what we have currently on the ground, and uh, uh, definitely 2020 was a very specific year. Because on the one hand, we had a certain ceasefire that being longer than the previous ceasefires, and some hoped that it would be more stable ceasefire. That was for quite a long time, very, very rare incident. At the same time, unfortunately, what we see since January that um, the new wave of violations of the ceasefire is happening and the tactics of violations have changed. 
because if the heavy weapons being uh, withdrawn uh, approximately a year ago uh, from the contact line, so a lot of work of the snipers from the uncontrolled territories uh, started. And as you understand, sometimes uh, sniper's work is more dangerous because you can't control the dots from where it is coming. It is much more mobile uh, around the um, several hundred kilometers of the contact line. And the second problem is definitely unexploded uh, materials that are all around uh, uh, contact line that are still a huge problem, both for military and for civilian. But from January, we started to see that not only snipers uh, are active there, but more and more of the uh, heavier weapons are used. And uh, what is important that it's not only Ukrainian side that is reporting about this, but always seeing there uh, a special monitoring mission of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe in their daily reports uh, started to witness that uh, there is return of heavy weapons from the uh, uncontrolled territories uh, authorities closer to the contact line, what is quite a dangerous um, trend. But um, from another hand, like we said, the 2020, it was a hope of the ceasefire. But um, on the other hand, it was quite a negative trend. Uh, because of the pandemic, uh, the uh, Russian authorities and Russian proxies started to use the pandemic restrictions as an excuses to limit uh, free uh, movement of people uh, at the contact line. Uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, situation in this case was quite uh, unique for years, because if you compare any other of the conflict zones, usually people from two sides are rarely moving. It is usually single, uh, or we are speaking about very, very small amount of people who are daily crossing the line. Uh, between control and uncontrolled territories daily, we had tens of thousands of people crossing the line because of different personal issues they needed. So with the pandemic, we had regular situations that people been just prevented of crossing the line. And they've been even very negative uh, incidents when uh, people were stuck in the gray zone between controlled and uncontrolled territories because of the uh, uh, pandemic restrictions. But it influenced not only uh, common people, but also OST mission. Because according to the Minsk agreements, they should have control and access to the whole territory of Ukraine. There is no limitations for that. And if unfortunately everybody used that, they have not been allowed to enter Crimea for all these uh, uh, years. But they've been allowed to enter uncontrolled territories of the Netsk and Lugansk regions. So with the pandemic situation, uh, we had regular cases. Uh, it's easier to find the cases when they've been allowed to cross the line rather than when they haven't been allowed. So definitely because of this, we see that even that point that were the easiest for implementation in the Minsk agreements, it is the full-fledged work of the OEC mission. De facto for the last six years uh, were highly um, violated. So uh, uh, with this, uh, we are definitely talking of the current situation with what uh, we are coming in terms of Minsk agreement. And let's uh, remember that one of the biggest problems of it was that there were no hierarchy of the uh, clauses of the agreements. What is coming first? Uh, security situation, ceasefire, withdrawal of forces, control over the border, uh, or excess of the mission, or elections, or constitutional changes, like what is first. And definitely for all these years, it gave a lot of uh, possibilities for manipulations. 
and bargaining during the negotiations. And uh, uh, de facto, um, there were at least few points where everybody agreed that they should come the first. It is ceasefire, it is withdrawal of heavy weapons, and it is OEC mission work. So definitely uh, in 2021, uh, we came to the situation that it became even more difficult uh, to prioritize and to seek what can be in the current conditions implemented. That gave a lot of opportunities for Ukraine to speak about probably a possibility to um, renegotiate or at least to look uh, again to the or plan B uh, to those negotiations because currently uh, there is no chances that uh, agreement of 2015 um, can be uh, implemented. Especially because uh, we know that for more than one year we didn't have any negotiations in Normandy format except of the level of uh, advisors to the uh, leaders of the states. And uh, the Russian Federation quite seriously are um, uh, sabotaging, it's probably the best word, the uh, trilateral contact group uh, meetings and uh, uh, also the Normandy format. Uh, especially when we uh, speak about the trilateral contact group, uh, which is OEC, Russia, and Ukraine. And we know that for the last uh, several months, uh, all the reports from these contact group that it is just a waste of time, that the sides are not going to, to negotiate the substance, first of all. And the second, that Russia initiated the tactic that's always been in their agenda, but the last months we see more and more efforts in this direction, that they would like to put the representatives of the uncontrolled um, territories as uh, uh, main voices during the uh, trilateral contact group, where they are not part of. So uh, OEC representatives allowed and um, uh, during the latest uh, uh, Zoom meetings to speak for the representatives of the uncontrolled territories. And uh, um, uh, if before they've been just as part of the Russian delegation, so now they're trying to present themselves as the individuals uh, and individual actors uh, over there in uh, negotiations. So uh, that uh, brings us to the situation of the certain limbo. What is the future of those agreements, not only as a document, uh, because we understand that Minsk agreement have very, um, specific legal uh, um, position in terms of, uh, of docu being documents, but of those uh, agreements reached and of those formats that have been created after the uh, Minsk negotiation. So definitely now uh, both Normandy uh, format and Minsk format are under the question. And we understand that with an upcoming elections in France and Germany, unfortunately not more uh, uh, clarity is coming to uh, this and to the future of these negotiations. And uh, because of this, there's definitely uh, more and more voices in Ukraine who are speaking that probably the United States should uh, join the negotiation forum. Uh, let's be honest, it's not that much realistic as for now because we don't see um, not only agreement of four members of the Normandy format, but also from the United States. Uh, a lot of politicians there are afraid that uh, joining the Normandy can ruin the Normandy, that it could be something new. But also the question is, is it not what Russia is really wanting uh, to make all these negotiations, uh, not Russian-Ukrainian, not Normandy, but back uh, uh, to USSR times, uh, Moscow-Washington negotiations about any kind of the conflict in the world. 
So uh, with this, limiting my time, uh, not exceeding it, I would say that uh, as a conclusion, in terms of security, we see that the process is developing and unfortunately more to the negative than to the positive the last two months. In terms of diplomatic negotiations uh, as well, the situation of the last half a year is demonstrating the negative trend uh, rather than positive. Thank you very much, uh, Hannah. Um, just a reminder that we are going to be taking your questions and you can submit your questions by, by email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org. You can tweet us at Kennan Institute or you can post on our Facebook page. And a reminder, please include your name and affiliation when sending your questions. Uh, our second speaker is Brian Milikovsky. Uh, he is an independent analyst of Ukraine. He works on economic recovery issues in the development sector in Luhansk. Uh, he has been in Ukraine since 2009, working on various different sectors and projects. Brian, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Will. I apologize for not uh, sharing my, my screen. I'm getting, getting over uh, an illness and I'm a little bit unpresentable right now, but uh, very happy to be able to join today. Um, you know, I think it's, it's quite understandable that we spend so much time when discussing uh, the Minsk process, talking about the, the negotiations towards a final political settlement. I mean, the lives, property, political agency of several million people are at stake. And yet so much of the Minsk process is, is observing Ukraine and Russia orbit around the basic incompatibility of their interpretations of the accords. If there is a mutually acceptable compromise that would get to, to a final negotiated political uh, uh, resolution, it would require such an extraordinary alignment of political planets on both sides. And we haven't even thus far come really close to seeing that alignment. The beginning of the Zelensky presidency was widely seen as a moment that was sort of pregnant with that possibility. He seemed to be really spending political capital, trying to line up uh, political stakeholders inside Ukraine for uh, for a tough negotiating process, potentially with compromises. And what we saw was Russia take virtually no steps to help him use that political space, uh, instead actually often taking the chance to humiliate him. And so that situation did not lead to, to any fundamental change and, and was followed really by a, a deep retrenchment that we're now just in a in a later stage of. So in the, in the absence of hope in the near future, in my, my opinion, for a conclusive political settlement, I think many people would share that assessment that we don't see that in the, on the, the near-term near -term horizon. I've been arguing for the past several years uh, for an approach to possibly try to, I, we, I wonder if it is possible to bring forward certain critical issues in the Minsk process that might be at least partially resolvable even if the political future of the Donbass is still in question, even in the absence of a, of a conclusive political resolution. First and foremost, I have the economy which in mind, which is my specialization in the region, but there are other issues as well, especially critical infrastructure, especially the, the uh, Vada Donbassu, water of the Donbass system that provides drinking water for most of the region and which is in a disastrous shape. Um, Regarding the economy and its place in Minsk, I, I imagine the issue thus. Um, the political and economic situations are like, are like two hourglasses 
draining at very different speeds. The political hourglass, there the sand is draining in fits and starts and, and periodically it even gets, it gets reset. In contrast, uh, the hourglass, if we're talking about the economy, is truly just draining before our eyes. It is a question of running out of time. Economic conditions in the non-government controlled areas of the Donbass, the so-called People's Republics of Donetsk and Lugansk, are uh, catastrophic. And they're degrading at such a rate that if that dynamic doesn't change soon, a political settlement that comes potentially much later could be moot. The, the so-called People's Republics will be basically non-viable as a place to support millions of people who still call them home and, and several million who might wish to return. Um, you know, to very briefly touch on this, I gave a, I gave a talk uh, about a year ago uh, at Kennan Institute and uh, at the Wilson Center in DC about this. But of course, we, what we see is, is essentially destruction, blockade, and the so-called nationalization of, of uh, mining and, and manufacturing enterprises in the non-government controlled areas leading to them being cut off essentially from the global market that they need to survive. And instead, instead the fruit of the, the, the famous industrial production of the Donbass is forced through a very narrow passageway into Russia to be re-laundered back into Ukraine or onwards to other export de uh, destinations like Poland and Turkey. And of course, much of the value of these commodity products like coal and steel gets captured in the laundering process as it passes through Russia. And, and what this is really leading to is um, that, well, essentially rather than integrate the economy of the non-government controlled areas into their own jurisdiction, their own economic system in any meaningful way, Russia has left these, this, this entire industrial economy in, in a legal limbo uh, farming out these so-called nationalized enterprises to, to predatory oligarchs who were wringing them dry. And uh, with every day that this, this disastrous status quo persists, which I'd like, to, I'd like to reiterate, is created by a series of policy decisions. Uh, but first of all, both the, the destruction of the war, of course, is one of the major factors, but also uh, a policy decision in March 2017 by Ukraine to impose something close to a full industrial blockade, and then a, a policy decision by Moscow passed off as one by the by Luhansk and Donetsk to so-called nationalize, place under under temporary management all of these uh, industrial enterprises. And where this, uh, the longer this status quo persists, uh, the 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 more the ultimate costs of restoring the Donbass increase. Economic assets are degrading, while infrastructure and ecological issues daily grow more and more retractable with, no, with a shrinking economic base to help address them. Uh, just an, a very brief example, you know, as coal mines are shut down and miners thrown out of work and, and they're striking on a regular basis, at the same time, the de facto authorities in the, in the so-called people's republics don't have the funding or don't want to find it to, to pump out these mines uh, to prevent them from, from flooding, which is causing rivers and lakes and reservoirs in the non-government controlled areas to drain down into the mine shafts 
and and drinking water supplies across the Donbas and even into Russia to be to be poisoned with mine tailings. These are the kinds of problems we're dealing with, and they're essentially not touched right now in the Minsk process. We have a socioeconomic now there there is a socioeconomic subgroup in in the Minsk process uh, about which we hear almost nothing, uh, and my that they they are really just addressing small localized questions. So my fundamental uh, question, one that I'm I'm doing some uh, focusing my research on is, is it possible to bring forward a discussion of a, a, a negotiated new arrangement for burning issues like the economy or critical infrastructure, as, as I mentioned, Vadad Basu, that is decoupled and brought forward from discussion of a final, final political settlement, which right now, uh, as as we heard, uh, is is just really not in the cards in the near future, and I'm afraid in the in the midterm future as well. Um, is it possible to? Uh, are there parties on on both sides uh, prepared to take on the political risk, but also potentially reap some of that political capital of creating solutions to some urgent issues faced by people in the Donbass? even as the very gradual process of moving towards a, a settlement continues. Uh, are, are those stakeholders in place in the Minsk process? Uh, very much not, not clear right now, but I think a very important question we should be looking at, uh, perhaps rather than, than exclusively focusing on, on, on the long-term political settlement. Uh, and uh, would, um, out of any, even even if we were able to find those stakeholders at a practical level, is it possible still to reach sort of technocratic solutions to issues like this? If we look at uh, the question of the fate of these uh, Ukrainian enterprises in the non-government controlled areas, even if Russia found the political will to take on a difficult question like that and resolve it in order to improve socioeconomic conditions, would they be able to even wrest away those uh, enterprises from the the economic actors that they have farmed them out to and who they're allowing to to quite ruthlessly exploit them? Um, I'll finish by saying I've, I've used the economy as an example of the one of these sort of intractable issues that are not getting any oxygen in the Minsk process because, uh, as I said, it essentially a, a process of orbiting around these these incompatible positions on the on the final political settlement, and I think it's very worthwhile looking for opportunities. I uh, uh, and think that uh, Western governments might be able to potentially offer some some uh, encouragement in that regard to look for. Uh, as I said, decoupling critical issues like the economy and discussing them. Uh, separate from a final political resolution. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brian. Uh, just a reminder uh, to our audience that you can send our questions via email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org. You can tweet us at Kennan Institute, or you can post on our Facebook page. Our final speaker today is Mikhailo Minikov, who is the Kennan Institute Senior Advisor on Ukraine and Editor-in-Chief 
of Focus Ukraine, the Kennan Institute's Ukraine Focus blog. He's also editor-in-chief of the Ideology and Politics Journal. Uh, for 18 years, he taught at the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies of the National University of the Kiev, Kiev Mihila Academy in Ukraine. Misha, the floor is yours. Thank you, Will. Thank you. Well, while I was listening to my colleagues, Anna and, uh, and Brian, I just recalled also this seven years long history of, of Minsk. Let me remind our audience that Minsk one, the, the first agreement between uh, Kyiv and Moscow was reached uh, early in 2014 after a successful uh, first military campaign. And then it took another six months approximately to uh, come up with 12 conditions that are in the protocol, the so-called Minsk Protocol or Minsk II, which was signed by representatives of uh, Putin and uh, President Poroshenko uh, and kind of offered some, uh, some tool to manage and then resolve the conflict. So basically, uh, Minsk II was designed in order to help starting uh, conflict management that would uh, probably lead to the conflict resolution. However, if we look at these six years afterwards from the solution, this document became the source of the problem. So back in 2015, it actually stopped the uh, active phase of war when the front line, uh, approximately 450 kilometers line, was stabilized and the, the both uh, sides started creating these shields, the, the, the security measures that would prevent from further attacks. And then for up until uh, July 2020, as Anna told, uh, there, there was kind of stabilized uh, situation with approximately from 10 to 12 attacks per day on this front line. And only for the Ukrainian side, it would cost 20 to 25 uh, lives of our military. But again, uh, since uh, the, the August last year, there was a hope for Minsk III. Even the term was appeared before the document actually was proposed. And this Minsk III was also a symptom uh, that the, the, the older agreements are not functioning properly. They neither, neither manage the conflict nor resolve it, and they create problems. Uh, and out of many problems, uh, they, they were creating also the, the internal political uh, tendencies in Ukraine that would make even Protocol 2 uh, undoable, unim unimplementable. So basically by January this year, there was still a hope that uh, Normandy format and the Minsk process would come up with something less toxic, more implementable. And instead we have a uh, radical worsening of the situation. It's actually started in, uh, in the beginning of February, so about a month ago, so that if we uh, compare the data, for example, the first week of January this year and the first week of uh, February this year, there was 10 times increase of the military attacks on the front line. 
Well, while preparing to our today's conversation, I also was checking the data on what's going on right now in these recent two weeks in March. And I, I'd say that uh, the level of the number of violations of the uh, armistice is uh, very high on the side of the front line with the so-called uh, Donetsk Republic. It's uh, between 150 and 45, 50 uh, per day. And the major spots, the major battlefield are near Mariupol and Donetsk. So basically in these zones, the uh, pacification uh, is not in place at all. On the uh, so-called Luhansk Republic, uh, there's less uh, active problems, but still uh, there were on the March, on the March 12, there, there was a very high uh, level of aggression, more than 200 uh, shots uh, on this uh, part of the front line. And when we look at the March data from Ukrainian side, uh, there were three persons, three servicemen from Ukrainian army killed and six uh, servicemen from the Donetsk Republic. So basically, we, we see that the number of uh, victims, the number of uh, military activity is returning to this pre-August situation. So basically, the, the period of uh, six months was in vain, was spent in vain. Uh, diplomats didn't manage to find any new steps ahead and the reached agreements and the reached achievements are now uh, gone. And yes, it's actually the, the situation that shows that there's uh, in this political process in re the resolution process, uh, there is no decoupling of economic, social, ecological issues from political and security issues. And the situation is uh, worsening and probably this spring will be the period of uh, many social and ecological uh, crises and catastrophes. I will stop with this and we'll be ready to answer the questions of our audience. Thank you. Thank you very much, Misha. Uh, again, for our audience, uh, you can send your questions uh, for our speakers by email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org. Uh, you can tweet us at Kennan Institute or you can post on your Facebook page. Well, there's a, a lot to discuss and a lot to digest. Um, I, I, based on all three uh, papers, uh, I, I feel that uh, there's not a lot of reason for optimism, but uh, I think we can explore that in the question time. But my first question, and, and Hanna raised this issue, is the support of Ukraine's allies. Um, you mentioned that there are elections in Germany and France. Um, we now have a new president who has issued statements uh, in support of Ukraine, but hasn't talked about anything about renegotiating Minsk II or Minsk III. So to what extent um, can Ukraine rely on its allies, its longtime supporters to negotiate or try to renegotiate um, Minsk II? Or is that a non-starter? Are, are their allies and supporters not willing to renegotiate? Good question. Uh, and it seems to me that that is a question that we have annually. 
And uh, definitely the general perception now in Ukraine that rely on your partners, but build your own forces. And when we say forces, it's not only army, but also the uh, enough political forces understanding that at any moment you can be left alone uh, at this negotiation table. And uh, you never can be 100% sure in all those who are sitting around you. But at the same time, what we see that the positions of all our main partners, they are the same. So it is a very strict condemnation of the Russian aggression, of the uh, Crimean annexation, of the support of the forces. We see that uh, sanctions, all packages that are against the Russian Federation, they are in place. And uh, this year, it was less opposition among some of the European countries to probably renegotiate or to ease the sanction uh, pressure against the Russian Federation. But let's be honest, one of the reasons is actions of the Russian Federation of itself. So with the actions against Navalny, for example, or with the uh, uh, certain uh, um, instruction, let's say, or intervention in the elections in some of the countries, Russia is uh, um, adding to the negative image and it's uh, playing in hands of those forces within the European countries or European Commission who are in favor of the prolongation of sanctions. At the same time, we are perfectly understanding that there are forces in Germany and France, in particular, some of the political parties, some of the presidential candidates uh, who are for the dialogue, uh, unconditional dialogue with the Russian Federation and who think that sanctions are not playing their role. Even more of these, we can see in such organizations as Parliamentary Assembly of Council of Europe uh, or within some other international forums. So for Ukraine, it is a daily work of how to uh, secure uh, support of the international partners, of how to consolidate their efforts. And here we see that, first of all, we are definitely relying not only on France and Germany, but also building the allies with other countries in European Union, uh, like Baltic states, like Romania, like even Turkey, uh, because Turkey, um, in terms of uh, Crimea is very strong supporter of uh, Ukraine and definitely the United States. That's why for Ukraine it was so important to have bipartisan support, not just of Democratic president or Republican president, but bipartisan support of the Congress uh, in terms of sanctions, in terms of financial support and all other types of support that Ukraine can have. Uh, still, that is definitely worries. And we see that uh, um, it is certain doubts about what type of support should be given, what type of support is effective, how effective sanctions are. And that is the constant dialogue and diplomatic work that are happening. So unfortunately, uh, we definitely can't just relax and to say that it doesn't matter when negotiations happening, who will be sitting from the leaders around the table, we will have this support. Uh, so that is at least clear understanding in Kyiv that that is not the case and we need to work. Even more, we are now this year separated a little bit, like if we always at political level are speaking about Crimea and Donbass as the uh, joint case, because it is a case of Russian aggression against Ukraine. But in terms of international support, we started to divide these cases a little bit with Normandy, Minsk, and uh, OEC being part for um, Donbass, for a Minsk uh, process. 
but creating Crimean platform as the new mechanism, as the new platform for uh, cooperation of those who are ready to support Ukraine uh, in Crimean questions and in the Black Sea security. So the summit is already announced for uh, um, August, and that will give us additional uh, variants for involving international partners. Because as I said in the uh, beginning, if the United States is doubting about joining Normandy, so not to ruin the format already in place, so our uh, Crimean platform is giving the opportunity, for example, to uh, United States to enter the process where there is no leaders yet, except of Kiev, and to be more active in uh, uh, Russian-Ukrainian conflict, but uh, in the new format, in something about Crimea, where the United States always had uh, a big word, let's remember the uh, Pompeo Declaration, for example. Thank you, Hannah. Um, a question for Brian. Um, you talked about the economic difficulties in, in the Donbass, and they seem to just be turning to the worse at all times. So to what extent are people protesting or objecting uh, or finding fault in Russia uh, that they haven't uh, submitted or given the promised aid to Crimea and the Donbass? Or does uh, alternatively, for example, of the, the decision to shut down water uh, to Crimea, is Ukraine, but uh, uh, is the Ukrainian government faulted for for its for the economic difficulties and the dire straits of the citizens citizens in Donbas in Crimea and Crimea? I'll uh, I'll speak mostly to Donbas. Um, I'm I'm not an expert on the on the. Crimea situation, uh, and especially uh, the socioeconomic condition of, of Crimeans, uh, I, I certainly try to keep up, uh, try to be an expert on that issue in, in the Donbass uh, as best I can. Uh, what I would probably say is, of course, the resource uh, allocation by the Russian government to those two places is dramatically different. Uh, Crimea is there is the is a beloved project, openly funded and uh, by the Russian government in an attempt to really make it into a uh, a uh, demonstration point of uh, the value the value of acquiescing to uh, Russia's vision for the former Soviet Union for the former Soviet space. Um, the, the rapid building of the Kerch, Kerch Bridge, for instance, was um, uh, a major PR move uh, to address, you know, a, a rather serious socioeconomic issue that arose because of the annexation. Um, it also was a, a means to create even more economic pain for, for Ukraine by building that bridge a little too low to allow major shipping in and out of Mariupol port. Um, what, what I wanted to emphasize was just that uh, Crimea now as a, uh, as Russia sees it, a part of, uh, you know, it is a new federal okrug of the Russian Federation in their, in their system, has a, has a direct budget line uh, in, the, in the Kremlin's annual budget and large open fun funding flows. Uh, whereas the Donbass is... Uh, receiving large inputs, economic inputs every year from uh, Russia in order to prevent a complete socioeconomic collapse. 
but it's done through a variety of, of uh, schemes, loopholes, uh, hidden funding channels. Uh, there's a relatively small amount of direct and, and uh, unconcealed Russian funding going into uh, uh, the so-called people's republics. What does that create? Of course, a lot of extra opportunities for skimming and corruption within the Russian and so-called Republican system. Uh, and in general, um, it's a lot harder to lobby for more funding. It's a lot harder for the, the public there to, uh, they, th to, to find any voice in the Russian political system to, to say, this isn't enough. Uh, this, is, this safety net is still too full of holes. And so I think that's why, although there, uh, there is something that I think of a growing socioeconomic um, set of grievances in Crimea that are often around property rights, uh, they can't compare, I think, to the level of frustration and unrest in the, in the Donbass. Um, 2020, COVID greatly accelerated and, and created more pain in the economic situation there. And 2020 was the year that we started seeing what we earlier thought was impossible, I think, which is industrial strikes in, the, in Luhansk and Donetsk, so-called so people's republics, which are now widespread. And that is considering a very high level of, of security service control over the, the population. There are miners pulling the classic Ukrainian uh, mining uh, negotiating tactic of staying at the bottom of their coal shaft. Uh, there are um, uh, metallurgy plants with, with shop shutdowns uh, by, by workers. Uh, th this, is, this is pretty remarkable. Um, is Russia paying the price uh, for this? I think... To some level, yes, and we can only really understand this primarily the way we get information from that side about the way that residents of those cities feel about the economy is from Telegram uh, and Russian social media networks to a much less extent Twitter and Facebook. It's, uh, it's a heavily filtered uh, form of uh, information. You have to take it with a large grain of salt, but if you look at the mass of frustration and anger in those social media networks, I think it's pretty clear Russia's paying a serious dividend in uh, disappointment and disenchantment among people in the so-called people's republics who may have once been rather fiery supporters, may have. It's, you, you never should assume, of course, uh, the ideology of those residents. Is Ukraine also paying? Uh, yes, of course, there's, there is a still, there's also a uh, a, a level of anger and frustration directed at the Ukrainian government. The blockade on both sides of the front line in the Donbass remains a highly contentious issue that uh, was always unpopular in the East, sort of as you move deeper into Ukraine becomes progressively more, more popular, but is also not a very well understood policy and never was. Uh, so Sorry, that was a rather drawn out answer, but yes, I, I think Russia is beginning to, um, to pay something of a price for that, which raises the question, as I, as I mentioned in my, in, in my talk, do, might they see the value in easing that socioeconomic situation, which would require being much more actively negotiating on concrete bread and butter issues and not just what will the final political resolution look like? 
Thank you very much, Brian. Um, we're about to get to your questions. Again, send them to us uh, by, by email to Kenan at wilsoncenter.org or tweet us at, at Kenan Institute or post on our Facebook page. But I wanna ask Misha one last question before we get to the uh, audience uh, questions. And that is how much political capital did Zelensky lose when he tried to make overtures to Russia and does he have any sort of capital or standing to restart these negotiations? Well, it's actually interesting uh, trajectory that President, uh, President Zelensky and his supporters were going on. So he was uh, literally uh, elected on the expectations rather than promises, expectations of uh, peace and resolution with Moscow. However, right now we can see that those 20, 30% of Ukrainian populations who uh, are stably supporting president, they are more inclined to uh, military action for re reintegration. So it's the, the sympathies of people and of president and policy of president are changing towards more uh, critical stance towards the separatist units and Russia. So right now, I would say that uh, uh, th th there is less and less uh, social group that would support peaceful resolution and president at the same time. There is some division and uh, president is also taking more and more uh, radical actions to find solution, to also uh, get the stronger position in future talks with Moscow. However, these uh, talks should start at certain moment and that this moment, moment is not yet seen. So in a way, the, 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 the sides from uh, on the both sides of the uh, front line are kind of getting more and trying to get stronger positions before the talks, but the, the talks do not start. And that's the, the risky moment uh, right now. I was also, uh, I'm doing this research continuously on the de facto states. So we have a network of de facto states and post-Soviet Union uh, space. And there are six of them right now. And uh, five of them belong or depend, heavily depend on Russia. Before uh, the Donbass war, the data were usually open and you, you could actually see uh, how how big is the price for Russian Federation? The support for these uh, non-recognized statelets. 80% uh, of Southern Abkhazia or 50% of uh, Transnistrian budget were stemming from Russian Federation state budget. Uh, taking into account uh, the number of population, the, the situation with the economy in the in non-controlled territories of Donbas. I think the level of uh, support, uh, the level of support to the budget of Donetsk or Luhansk is higher than 80%. It's estimation, but I think I'm close to uh, uh, real data, which means that uh, the dependency of these non-controlled territories is very high. And also there's another level uh, of dependency, which is Russian citizenship. I think that by end of March, it is expected that uh, half a million of 
uh, non of populations, half a million of citizens, former citizens of Ukraine, will get Russian citizenship, which means that uh, it will would be difficult for public uh, public administration of Russia for the government of Russia to actually leave this spot and say, okay, take it for Ukraine. So in a way, there's the, the position from uh, Kyiv is stronger and stronger and also there's uh, uh, more militarized rhetorics right now from our side. And there's also this very uh, strong position from Kremlin and readiness for a new wave of conflict. However, I hope that instead of new wave of conflict, there will be Minsk III or something like that. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we'll now go to our questions. And the first one is from Todor uh, Lekik. And he asks, can we interpret Russia's obstruction of the Minsk II agreement uh, through Mos Moscow's desire to keep the conflict frozen? In other words, to what extent does Russia actually want to make a deal or to what extent is it to its advantage to have it a frozen conflict? Who wants to take that? I would probably take this. Uh, frozen conflict is definitely what is beneficial to Russia on one hand, because that is the tactics they know how to deal with. Let's remember Transnistria, uh, South Ossetia, Abkhazia. So they already know the rules and how to operate in these conditions. And on one hand, it seems like it needs less money. Uh, because uh, military efforts, uh, definitely military equipment, it always takes uh, much more uh, money. At the same time, uh, um, there are also options that Russia just don't know what to do with these territories. Uh, because it is understandable that just to give it back, it is to lose face. Uh, so uh, the frozen status, it is something like to wait before the better uh, propositions are coming or at least before better options uh, what, to, what to do with these territories. It is understandable that if uh, Crimean annexation, it was a very symbolic uh, gesture from uh, uh, Russian Federation because Crimea always was a very symbolic place for, uh, for Russians. Uh, so uh, Donbass is definitely not that um, tasty, let's say, piece to take uh, inside of the Russian Federation. Otherwise, they could already do it, and they also understand that as soon as they uh, annex these territories, more sanctions would come, and here you, they would not be able to say that uh, uh, they are just mediators and they are not present there. So that makes all the situation that the certain frozenness uh, gives, on one hand, the possibility to be less involved, to spend less money to these territories, but at the same time, still to control the uh, ultimate goal uh, means less uh, uh, possibilities for the future integration of Ukraine to NATO and the European Union. Because Russia still thinks that uh, uh, the conflict it is the only way and the only tool how to prevent Ukrainian uh, NATO integration. Thank you, uh, ha uh, Hannah. Um, our next question comes from retired ambassador Herman Cohen. And he asks whether a peace deal is possible along the lines of Russia returning Crimea to Ukraine and Ukraine giving Russia a 100 year lease on the naval base in Crimea. That was an old deal, but. Uh, yeah, it looks like that is a question that I also need to uh, take. 
Um, let's remember that uh, Russians already had these options and it didn't work. So-called Kharkiv agreements uh, sealed doubts were they constitutionally legal or not. But if we remember, in the Constitution of Ukraine, it was said that uh, Russian forces can be till 2017 with the possibility to prolong to the next five years, so 2025. Uh, nevertheless, in 2010, Yanukovych signed an agreement allowing Russians to stay till 2042. And uh, honestly, he could sign it even for a longer time. Uh, so in 2014, it didn't prevent Russians. They had a right to stay till 2042. But uh, for them, it was not only about uh, military base in Sevastopol, it was much more about uh, other options and the possibility to take the whole Crimea. And we know that certain nationalistic forces inside of Russia for quite a long time dreamt about taking Crimea. The same as they're saying about Alaska uh, in relations with the United States. It's just the question that with Crimea, they had their chance of doing it. And with Alaska, it's a little bit more complicated for them. But we need to understand that it's not just about physical possibility to have a good military base in warm waters uh, to control the South dimension, uh, but also about the symbolism of the history of Crimea for the Russian Empire that uh, a lot of people in Russia are not ready to uh, um, uh, to make much more pragmatic. So it's very symbolic and ideological for them rather than rational about the military base stationing. I would also like to intervene here and uh, re recall about the Crimean Congress that is being prepared right now. Uh, so in a way, Ukraine is trying to involve many other uh, sides into the, the situation. Uh, the, the Black Sea countries, the, the NATO member, countries in order to find uh, and create an international support for Ukrainian plans to reintegrate Crimea. So in a way, uh, from this year on, uh, the President Zelensky's uh, administration starts a long-term uh, policy, this strategic tolerance policy, policy that in future may create preconditions for returning of Crimea back. However, as uh, Honorable Ambassador asks about this centuries ahead, probably it's not uh, at the, the table right now anymore. Thank you. Thank you, Misha. Um, we have another question from Grace uh, Kier, who is a junior fellow at the Carnegie Russia. Uh, and he, he asked about Nord Stream 2 and whether the disputes with Nord Stream 2, about Nord Stream 2, affects Germany's ability to engage in negotiations. If I may, I'll start and maybe Anna O'Brien would continue. Well, right now there's, a, there's some ambiguous situation. It looks like Washington and Berlin uh, right now discuss uh, the, the future of this uh, pipeline. Uh, and um, uh, if we look at uh, this project as part of the foreign policy of Russia, then it was quite, quite successful in terms of creating discussions and distrust between Western politics. However, uh, I also see how the German and uh, European businesses are looking at the situation. They think that politicians 
are not paying enough attention to their interests. The German business really dreams about Germany as this energy hub of Europe. And it's additional, one more cleavage that this project created in, in within Germany and within EU, a cleavage between governments and uh, business communities. Uh, we uh, in uh, Focus Ukraine published, uh, published recently several interesting analysis papers, but this week we are to publish a new analysis, the, the, the most recent of what's going on uh, with uh, Nord Stream 2, and please uh, follow our publications. You will read it uh, with many details that were not published in Western press yet. Thank you. Anyone else want to jump in about the role of Nord Stream 2? Uh, Putin has, has accused you, uh, the West and the sanctions related to Nord Stream 2 as being part of a, a funding project of the West to support Ukraine. Um, any other comments about where uh, the, the impact of Nord Stream 2 in, in these negotiations? Uh, very briefly, from political point of view, I can't command the energy security in this way, but um, let's remember that uh, uh, Russians made the precondition for the Normandy negotiations in Paris in December 2019, uh, the uh, negotiations about energy security and the contracts between Ukraine and Russia. So energy sphere uh, for the Russian Federation for the very long time had been the tool of political pressure and of the security matter. It's not just business. And that is one of the biggest problems that different sides uh, um, of Nord uh, Stream are dealing with the issue from completely different perspective. For Germans, that is business, first of all, or at least Angela Merkel is trying to present it as, first of all, a business issue. For Russians, it is a political issue. Uh, the United States currently took this as the security issue, more of the classical security understanding how it can undermine uh, uh, the security uh, in Europe, or at least um, can make Germany more dependent on the Russian Federation. At the same time, we know that already in Germany, there are certain moods that are changing, even within the ruling party. Uh, more and more, there are articles published by the members of parliament saying that maybe we need to imply a certain time of uh, temporary prohibition or uh, some types of restrictions. So they're trying to find a way out of this project because... Um, for the Greens, they speak a lot about environmental impact, negative impact of this project, uh, but others are trying to say, do we really need it in the current conditions when we speak about green economy, green deal for Europe, so less uh, um, maybe oil and gas used for the economy. So uh, is it not enough of those pipelines that we already have for our future um, purchases? So we see that... Uh, as for now, it's not just Ukraine who is imposing this for the political and security negotiations, but we already see that even in Germany, this dialogue started about the real necessity and the real impact of the Nord Stream. So that's why we can imagine that for the next year, at least, this question will be pumped up all the time in US Germany, in the European Commission, in uh, 
German domestic uh, uh, discourse and definitely in uh, uh, the Russian Germany and uh, Ukrainian Germany uh, negotiations. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Hannah. And just a reminder that if you have questions, uh, you can still send them to by email to Kenan at wilsoncenter.org. You can tweet us at Kenan Institute or post on our Facebook page. Um, I have a question for Brian. And, and that is, you talked about decoupling the political and the economic and trying to find a way to, uh, to, to begin kind of negotiations that focus on specific issues as opposed to the whole uh, settlement of, Ukraine, of, of Crimea and the Donbass. So my question to you, Brian, is that Putin has just introduced several constitutional amendments where he basically says that you cannot alienate a part of the territory of the Russian Federation and that Russia is responsible uh, for to defend the interests of Russians abroad. So my question for you, and I realize this is a, a, a difficult question, is what is the, is the incentive for Putin to kind of back away from all these constitutional amendments and promises and decouple and begin negotiations? Is, is there a way, from your perspective, um, that Putin can, can rejoin negotiations and save face? Oh, um, and, and if you know the answer, you'll, you'll get a Nobel Prize. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's doozy. But, um, um, you know, I mean, again, I think fundamentally, Crimea on some level is so much more complicated uh, than the Donbass because, uh, as, as uh, Anna said, you know, in, in the Donbass, Russia left. Uh, this sort of, it's not plausible deniability at all. It's incredibly implausible deniability, but it's, it's essentially, oh, well, we're, we're just a, a, you know, a, a facilitator of a final negotiation here. Whereas yes, in, in Crimea, uh, where, you know, the, right now the fundamental sort of bread and butter issue that uh, also for the long-term economic viability of that region is, is water coming from the, the Dnipro Canal and which also, if left unresolved for a long time, can fundamentally change conditions, physical agronomic conditions in a way that, again, makes it quest questionable how much of a prize, at least the farmland of Crimea will be to reintegrate. I mean, without irrigation, but with continued in industrial agriculture, you can see saltification, major losses in productivity and just a degradation of the, of the agricultural economy uh, to an extent that really puts into question it's, you know, also that territory's viability, although on a, on a much less precipitous time frame than, than the Dunbos. Uh, and yet, you know, there it is so much harder to be cutting deals because, uh, as you said, of Russia's now uh, statement that this is involubly our land. Uh, in the Donbass, where they claim to be um, uh, claim to only be a, a facilitator of a negotiation between these allegedly uh, independent actors in Donetsk and Luhansk and then the, the Ukrainian government, 
um, you know, Russia has left itself more space um, for a, a more pragmatic negotiating process. Um, and yet still, we don't see that, that happening. Uh, and again, I think it gets to, to interests. Um, it, well, it gets to stakeholders to a great extent. What are, who, are the, who are the Russian in policymaking stakeholders that might be, for instance, looking at the amount of money that they're spending on maintaining the Donbass every year and how much it is going to increase? Uh, you know, it's what, it, it, we've heard that Russia, for instance, has been pushing uh, Abkhazia, the breakaway territory in Georgia, to improve its economic relations with Georgia as a way to maybe reduce the long-term liabilities for, for Russia uh, budget-wise. Well, the Donbass, the two so-called people's republics, are Abkhazia times approximately 30 in population territory uh, infrastructure. Uh, those costs are going to be piling up. And, and uh, uh, I did a piece for Focus Ukraine two years ago in which I spoke to some experts um, who said, for now, it's a manageable couple billion dollars a year for Russia to, to prop up the socioeconomic safety net in, in the Donbass. But it's just going to get worse. As I said, there's going to be less of an economy to uh, support people. You're going to have a more and more aging population without working age people uh, within it. You're going to have these ecological and infrastructure issues just getting worse and worse. So is there, are there, you know, figures in the Ukraine, in the, excuse me, the Russian government um, looking at that and saying, look, we, we, our long-term liabilities here are just too much. We need uh, to find a common sense negotiated solution. And that's going to require, um, you know, some, some pretty major compromise from our end, or is the value of having this intensely ideological issue uh, for its relations with its own public, um, you know, greater for Russia. Uh, there are similar questions, I think, for Ukraine. They're much more difficult because Ukraine is driven into a corner in this situation. And the idea of ideological compromise is even harder for Ukraine to make uh, as essentially the victim of international aggression. Uh, and yet many of the same questions are also there about it, are the long-term economic liabilities created by this current status quo, which is such a disaster. Um, at some point, do they outweigh the necessity of maintaining a sort of united front of, of correct ideological positions? I've argued that the Ukrainian government needs uh, to uh, unfortunately be a little more um, perhaps pragmatically focused in some decision-making areas in, in, in Minsk and, and in Donbass policy in general. But of course, with across the negotiating table, a Russia that is still just looking at this as, how to say, just a prime ideological issue and not a, a issue to be resolved through common sense negotiation, then even even more pragmatic positions within Ukraine are not going to be able to, to create result. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. 
Our next question comes from Mark Pallod from Global Affairs Canada. And he asks, what do uh, average Ukrainian citizens see? The, how do they see the Minsk II agreements and its implementation? Uh, do they feel it, it is a legitimate international agreement or do they want to walk away from it? Kind of, so what is the public opinion vis-a-vis the Minsk uh, Accords? Well, I can answer here. According to recent uh, polls, over one third of Ukrainian population thinks that it's still okay to go on and implement Minsk uh, two agreements. Uh, however, when these, the pollsters started asking separate questions, control questions, whether the, you would agree with, on certain concessions, then the number of those uh, in support for Minsk II is dropping down to 22-25%. So in a way, there's no critical mass of Ukrainian population who would support the, the full implementation of, uh, of the uh, Minsk II agreements. However, uh, still there's a, a big portion of the, of the population that wants peaceful resolution. There's uh, approximately the same population that is looking for reintegration by different measures, uh, including uh, force. So right now, Ukrainian population is rather less informed and it's the time for uh, the, the leaders, for the leadership and for the policymakers to step in and uh, come up with new ideas and new formats of, uh, of conflict management and then resolution. And it, again, I, I call for uh, long-term solutions because there's, uh, there's nothing that can be done uh, fast uh, about something that exists already for seven years. Uh, I will use this opportunity to show this book. We just have published, my colleagues and I, uh, the post-Soviet secessionism together with Gwendolyn Zassi, Darya Sechenko and a number of American, Ukrainian and European scholars who study de facto states and secessionist movements in post-Soviet space. So uh, here we discuss a lot and analyze what's going on in uh, non-controlled territories of Donbass, but also in other uh, de facto states. And one of the important, uh, important conclusions here is that there is a model that was already tested for 30 years. It's socioeconomic and political model of survival under sanctions and being blocked by the mother states. So even though these uh, harsh conditions that uh, today uh, Ukrainians in Donbas in uncontrolled territories live through, uh, that was the same situation with uh, Abkhazians or uh, with um, Transnistrians for two, two uh, generations already. And nonetheless, the, these units still exist. They created some sort of very strange vibrance, uh, ability to survive, uh, also ability to survive either with total block like Georgia versus Abkhazia or soft approach as in Moldova versus Transnistria. And uh, my, my, my research, my chapter shows that there's a lot of communication between the governments or self-proclaimed governments, self-proclaimed authorities and they learn from each other. 
And this model is spread not only on the post-Soviet uh, space, but also has, uh, uh, gives or shares the lessons to secessionist movements in Western Europe. Thank you. Thank you, Misha. Um, and to follow up about that people are less informed about um, the Minsk process and, and not actually paying attention to it, um, do they take into account the consequences if Ukraine were to unilaterally walk away from Minsk too? Um, obviously, if Ukraine walked away, a lot of the sanctions, not all of them, but most of the sanctions potentially would disappear. So to what extent does, do, do, does, in terms of all this kind of tangled web that we've discussed already, to what extent is the fact that the, the Western support is predicated on Minsk II and that the sanctions maybe disappear without Minsk II, um, is, to what extent is that dictating Ukrainian policy? I would probably jump here because um, for the last year, or even better to say that approximately a year ago, there were quite uh, active discussions in uh, um, Ukraine about the uh, uh, dependence or not dependence of sanctions from the Minsk process. When we started to see that the Minsk is not going as it should be and uh, the Zelensky team started to be less naive about the intention of, of the Russian Federation, so this discourse was really very vivid. The problem is that nobody can tell uh, uh, exactly. Um, is it really just Minsk agreements uh, that uh, set the framework for the sanctions? Uh, European Commission sanctions, one of the three packages that exist, uh, they definitely say that sanctions can be taken off when Russia um, implements Minsk agreements. So it is a certain connection. But the question is that it says more about the conditions within the Minsk agreement rather than the agreement as a document. So the legal uh, schools, uh, the lawyers, the diplomats are still discussing uh, will sanctions automatically be lifted in case uh, um, Ukraine, for example, is getting out from the Minsk agreement. The problem is that, uh, first of all, we should not forget that some of the sanctions are because of Crimea. Some sanctions are individual because of other actions, like, for example, organizations of the illegal referendums uh, or uh, the organizations of the elections at these territories or other actions. So different people that have been added to this list, they are not connected with the Minsk agreements as, um, as agreements. Uh, and in other documents, usually in the legal form, it is not written about the Minsk agreements, uh, except, as I said, the European Commission first, uh, um, one of the first uh, packages. So uh, uh, that's why for the general population, they are also with the same opinion that uh, they are not completely sure that uh, sanctions are directly connected with the Minsk agreements that it is the closed circle, that Europeans are not understanding that uh, um, what is better to have uh, dead Minsk agreements or to have sanctions that can influence. So it seems to me that it is quite a, um, uh, I don't know, even the uh, discussion of more philosophical way and legal way rather than the political way currently happening. Nevertheless, we see more and more that uh, our close people to President Zelensky are speaking about plan B. Uh, we still don't know what is included in this plan B because a year ago they've been 
different options for this plan B from different members of his team. And uh, uh, nobody can say what is the final plan B that uh, warned their minds. So uh, uh, the question is that in case, for example, Minsk 3 appear, uh, will it be considered as the rejection of Minsk 2 uh, to which sanctions been connected? Uh, or it is just a break as Minsk 2 being to Minsk 1 uh, that been in September uh, 2014. That's why it seems to me that all parties are just looking for the options how to push the situation, how to change the situation in which everybody are blocked now, but at the same time not to undermine that consolidated position that uh, we currently have about the sanctions. Thank you. Uh, our next question comes from Gunter Rosenitz, who is the director of Austrian of the Austrian Peace Academy. And he asks, there are promising statements about from, coming from Biden about the increased support of the US for Ukraine and early NATO membership, which can be seen in the new national strategic strategy guidance. Are these just rumors or more empty promises uh, like the Budapest uh, memorandum? Uh, first of all, about the military support, just last week, additional uh, more than $100 million being allocated for Ukraine, uh, including the possibility for acquiring two additional uh, um, uh, boards of Mark IV class for Ukraine. So in this case, you uh, can see the reality of this increase of support. Uh, if we speak about NATO, so just in June 2020, Ukraine received the status of the Enhanced Opportunity Partner. Only six countries in the world have uh, this status. And uh, it's already the increased cooperation and interoperability that Ukraine will have with the NATO that is in the process, as well as the annual national programs that are adopted for each year. Uh, there by um, letters, they're definitely almost like a membership action plan. It is just the question how you name it. Definitely Ukraine is insisting that we would like to have the real membership action plan that would be not just the phrases about the open doors for Ukraine and Georgia to become members, but uh, about the real perspectives and real negotiations. As for now, we see that the United States, uh, doesn't matter who is the president, is the biggest supporters for this idea. The United Kingdom is uh, the next one. Let's be honest, we have still France and even Germany who have doubts about this. So uh, that's why it is more about the uh, NATO internal uh, uh, dialogue and uh, discussions about this rather than discussions inside of the United States. What Ukraine is also considering and uh, discussing with the United States, that is receiving of the uh, non-ally uh, status uh, or, or ally status, uh, uh, but not in NATO. That is special status that uh, is possible to have in the relations with the United States. Uh, also can be an option for Ukraine, even that it can be more symbolic maybe. And uh, uh, what is more important for Ukraine is a NATO membership uh, for sure. So uh, I can't say that we have empty promises from the United States side, uh, but uh, it is also the two-way road. Uh, promises from the NATO side, promises from Washington side, but necessary reforms inside of Ukraine. Because we understand perfectly that NATO membership, and if you read the annual national program, it's not just the military interoperability, 
here Ukraine is quite a good. Uh, it's not only NATO standards in army and in MOD, also the process is going on, but it is the big uh, package of reforms about corruption and about security services of Ukraine and their civilian control and reform of, of uh, judiciary. So those fears that uh, uh, guarantee the democratic development and anti-corruption development of Ukraine. And without these reforms, it will be uh, more difficult to speak about the real perspective for, for Ukrainian NATO membership. Any other comments? So we're, we're going to go to the last question. And it really uh, in, follows on what Misha was talking about is that there was has been an increase in both the casualties and the rhetoric from Russia uh, about the Donbass and about, about Crimea uh, to the point that uh, several Russians have talked about Ukraine as being a naturally hostile state. So to what extent, and, and this kind of gets back to the first question, to what extent does Russia want to back down? And the other, question is, is, is there a spark that could actually make this conflict much worse? Well, if I, if you let me, uh, I'll start. Well, in, in my opinion that uh, right now, uh, th there is some silence from the Kremlin side. You hear the very harsh rhetorics rather from uh, secondary figures in either in Russia or, or on these uh, unrecognized republics. But Kremlin itself keeps silence, which worries me a lot. Last week, we had a round table here in Canon, and uh, uh, Viktor Andrusiev, who is specialist on these uh, special, uh, special actions in propaganda um, of Russia in Ukraine, he was also saying the, the same, that absence of a clear angry rhetoric from Kremlin means that there's something in, in preparation. And uh, what is it? It's not clear. Maybe this will be the sparkle that may uh, restart active uh, military conflict. I hope not, but this pro probability is uh, growing. And right now, judging by what was happening in February uh, on uh, the Luhansk and Donetsk uh, side of the uh, Frontline, there was a rotation of military forces or the so-called people's militia. And it looks like the number of uh, militants is growing there. And these are the, the fresh uh, forces. Also, the, the, there are data that saying that the Ukrainian army is uh, moving some uh, weaponry closer to the uh, uh, front line. So if these, uh, this information is true, it means that the both sides are preparing for something that can be this uh, nasty return to what was happening in February uh, 2015. Actually, Minsk too was the result of a very unsuccessful campaign, military campaign for us. And uh, maybe Minsk III uh, is uh, something that would, would become the result of this third wave of the, of the war. I still hope it's not the case and it's rather the preparation for a new round of talks. Again, 
it's still uh, up to leaders of our nations to decide what will be the next. Thank you, Misha. We do have one last question uh, that's come in from uh, Elena Lennon. Uh, and since I asked her previous question, I feel ob obliged to ask this question. Uh, and it's for Hannah. You mentioned that we may be in a Cold War situation where only the US and Russia can negotiate a resolution. Do you think that the US and Russia could in fact sit down at a negotiating table over Ukraine? And do you think that both the United States and Russia could in fact offer concessions in exchange, uh, uh, in exchange for areas of mutual interest. We are luckily not in Cold War situation, and uh, because that is what Russia would like to have. And what I said that it is uh, uh, the Russian rhetorics and logic of action. Sometimes, if you follow both their strategic documents and a lot of statements since 2013 that they would like to see it as back to Moscow-Washington decision over any crisis in the world. And unfortunately, it looks like the last six years definitely demonstrated that it's not the case. We have uh, more actors that can be actively involved, and we have more sovereignty of the state around Russia uh, to also speak for themselves, probably something that during the Cold War we couldn't imagine. Uh, in reality, with the Surkov-Volker uh, dialogues that we used to have, that's what Russia wanted in the beginning because they expected that it will be that style of negotiations that Moscow and Washington can decide any problem in the world and then just impose this decision. Uh, the practice showed that the world changed. It's really have changed for the last 30 years. And even that still definitely we have more powerful states, those who can press the others, but it's not something that even the United States is eager to decide the question of Ukraine without Ukraine. Because it is already the clear understanding that if you would allow this uh, um, in terms of Ukraine for Russia, Russia will start doing it in other parts of the world. And there were more crises happening and definitely more um, conflicts where Russia involved. And in this case, uh, the United States would be busy all the time just as the firefighter uh, to deal with the new and new Russian crises around the world. So that's why it seems to me that that slogan that Ukrainian government adopted many years ago, like nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, is still uh, quite uh, uh, reliable because we see that the US representative is speaking more and more, both at the expert level and at the governmental level, at the diplomatic level, with Ukrainian side about our uh, readiness for compromise or our red line, and only then going and talking with the Russian side. So that is definitely the, quite a change from what uh, Moscow probably would like uh, to see. So I hope that this situation would continue and uh, that uh, bilateral US-Russia dialogue is bilateral in terms of strategic weapons, for example, nuclear weapons, but when there are talks about NATO membership, European security, Black Sea security, Donbass, Crimea, um, Georgia, any other crisis around the world, it, it will be not just a bilateral uh, US-Russia dialogue. Uh, thank you very much, Hannah. Uh, anyone want a final word? Uh, well, I might, I might throw yes, in Brian. One, one final word here, um, which is, I, I would definitely agree that if, for instance, it was attempted to uh, just sort of escalate upwards to the level of U.S. and Russia, the same 
fundamental questions being negotiated right now in Minsk, I think that would be moving a stalemate up into an even more ideal, ideological, uh, ideologically inflexible space, uh, which I think is, first of all, morally questionable whether you should take this, whether that decision process should be taken away from Ukraine, I think more, not just questionable, extremely dubious to say, all right, this is just going to get moved up to, to the level of the superpowers now. But it's also unlikely to change anything. And so just to, to reiterate what I, what I said at the very beginning, if I think an actor like the United States wants to be able to move, help this process move out of complete stalemate, it might be by uh, trying to be very issues focused and grab by the horns some issues that really affect the life of millions of people living in the Donbass. So especially for the US government, I might say, grab hold of water and energy in the Donbass, which are uh, you perpetually on the edge of collapse, grab hold of the economy and uh, shock potentially Russia out of its current positions by uh, putting forward a slate of tech technocratic uh, solutions that need uh, them to demonstrate some uh, uh, reasonability from their side. And uh, it, to some level, it's a win-win uh, if some progress can be made, then potentially the lives of millions of people are improved. If not, that would be tragic, but, but nonetheless, it would demonstrate that actors such as the United States and the Ukrainian government especially are uh, not just interested in these final abstract political solutions, which we are still so far from, but in the things that make life livable for, for people in the Donbass. Thank you very much, Brian. Uh, we've come to the end of our session, so I want to thank all of our speakers for your insightful comments, uh, our audience for your questions, and we look forward to you attending future Kennan Institute events. So thank you very much and have a good day.